I can't believe how much Jeff has been doing. I, I'm, and to fill in for Martha today, that's amazing. Those guys are working so hard, the Fractured Actors people. My name is Catherine. Welcome, those of you here, those of you online. It's really nice to see your faces. I have the right glasses to this week so I can see over the top and actually see you. Um, Today, you may have noticed that today is communion, so we will be having communion after the service, and here at Liminal, everyone is invited to communion, and uh, after the message, I will give you more information about that. We're in the middle of a series uh, called The Power of a Good Question, and as boxed in as the teachers felt with the Mark series because they had to cover certain verses, they had to cover certain themes, there were certain things that we wanted talked about. Uh, this series is the complete opposite. The teachers got to select whatever question that they wanted and um, can approach that any way they want. So uh, the only thing holding us together is the title of the series, The Power of a Good Question and the fact that we're all starting off with a question. Um, and so that makes it kind of fun, and you, I think in this series you get to see a little bit more about how each of us uh, differ from each other. Um, and I'm going to start in a minute. There was one more thing I wanted to say. Oh, yeah. I loved uh, last two weeks ago when Andrew had a whole bunch of art in his contemplative service. So I just threw in a lot of art today, and I, it's all by the same artist. It's all on the same subject. It's his, art, his name is uh, Chris Cook. He lives in the South. Um, but it also will give you a, pre a reprieve from feeling like you have to look at my face for hours and hours, so you can just look straight up. So there we go. Okay, I think I'm good now. So the question I chose today uh, for, is, why is it that you ask my name? And I'll explain where that came from in a little bit. And uh, for this question, we have an, an intriguing and perplexing passage from Scripture about a complicated man in a very puzzling and very enigmatic situation. So before we get to the passage, I'm going to give you a brief biography of him. The man was Jacob. Jacob was born to Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac was one of the sons of Abraham, the man with whom God made a covenant. And the covenant was, I will be your God, you will be my people, this land will be filled with your descendants, more numerous than stars in the sky. So therefore, Jacob, who's the hero or anti-hero of our story today, is a grandson of Abraham. And in the book of Genesis, we learn that this growing family of Abraham is not the exemplar of virtue and faith and morality that we might expect when we are learning about the history of the first covenant family. They lie. They manipulate situations for their own benefit. They play favorites. They mistreat their slaves. And they're even willing to allow their daughters to be raped if it gets them, the men, out of a jam. Not what you would expect. And Jacob amplified most of these traits beginning in the womb. Jacob was a twin. And despite Jacob's interference in the womb, trying to grab his brother's foot so that he, Jacob, would be born first, his brother Esau was born first. 
Esau was the larger, stronger brother, and he grew up to be a hunter and a provider for the family. Jacob was quieter. He hung out with his mom, and the parents had clear favorites. Isaac favored Esau. Rebekah favored Jacob. One day, Esau came back from hunting, and he was famished. He was so hungry. Jacob was cooking a stew. Esau demanded some right then. Our quick-thinking and manipulative Jacob thought, Ah, this is my moment. Sure, Esau, I'll trade you this bowl of stew for um, um, uh, your birthright as firstborn. (laughs) Esau, starving, not thinking, agreed. Now, maybe you've heard this phrase before. Your character is your future. Jacob's character and Jacob's future is on full display at this moment. Someone who is always trying to get the better of someone else. Years pass and the father Isaac becomes wealthier and wealthier. His herds increase, his flocks increase, the amount of slaves he owns increases. But Isaac's getting older He's nearly blind, and it's time for him to bless his oldest son, Esau, and pass his wealth on to him. But Jacob, with the help of his mother, tricks Isaac into blessing Jacob instead. And when Esau finds out about this, discovers that he's been swindled out of the family inheritance and out of his father's blessing, He is enraged, and he vows to kill Jacob. So Jacob flees the area, and he goes to live in another land with his uncle Laban, who is his mother Rebekah's brother. And on the way to this land, Jacob has a dream. God comes to him and reconfirms the covenant that God made with Abraham. Jacob arrives at the household of Laban, his uncle, and Laban has two daughters, Leah and Rachel. Jacob falls head over heels in love with Rachel. He wants to marry her. And Laban says, sure, but you're going to have to earn her. You're going to have to buy her. So you must work for me for seven years, and then you can marry my daughter, Rachel. Jacob does. And seven years later, there is a wedding, except that Laban, unbeknownst to Jacob, has swapped out the sisters. And after the wedding, Jacob discovers it was Leah under the veil that he married. Now, there is some poetic justice here because Laban has just done to Jacob what Jacob did to his own father, conned him out of something. But Laban and Jacob decide to strike a deal. Jacob gets Rachel now, but he has to work another seven years to pay for her. And during this time, Jacob's two wives and their two um, servant girls give Jacob 11 sons, some daughters too, but we only know the name of one of them. Now, because of the needs of his growing family, Jacob works out a deal with Laban. The deal is this that if Jacob does most of the work for taking care of all the flocks and the herds, then Jacob can take 
the less desirable livestock. Uh, maybe we'd think runts, the Bible says, the ones with streaks of color or patches of color. But because this is a tricky and manipulative uh, family, Laban actually hides all the desirable animals so that there are none available for Jacob. But our Jacob is very cunning, and he uses some Old Testament genetic modification techniques, and he manages to end up with enough flocks and wealth that Laban and his sons become very suspicious because they know Jacob well. And Jacob is worried about hanging around any longer with his father-in-law and his brother-in-laws mad at him. God speaks to Jacob again and tells him to return to the land of his fathers. And Jacob, being Jacob, does it in a sneaky way. He doesn't tell Laban he's leaving. He waits till Laban is busy in some fields far away. And then Jacob and his wives and his kids take everything that they think they are owed and they steal a few things, and they head out. Now, there's a lot more drama when Laban discovers that his uh, daughters and his grandchildren have been uh, taken by Jacob, but eventually it kind of works out, and Laban says goodbye to his daughters and grandchildren. Now, Jacob's possessions and his family make a very long and very large caravan that are moving slowly on the trail back to the, the land of his ancestors. And the Bible tells us a lot about what was in the caravan. Camels, donkeys, goats, sheep, cows, servants, supplies, wives, and children large and small. It's a huge spread out caravan. It's maybe a mile long. And the caravan will have to pass through the land that Esau occupies. Esau, who threatened to kill Jacob. Jacob needs safe passage through this land, but he's terrified of what Esau might do to him. So Jacob sends messengers to Esau asking for safe passage. And the messengers return and they say, Esau is coming to meet you, and he is bringing 400 men with him. Jacob panics. He takes about 600 of the animals, and he puts them in small little groups, each group led by a servant, to send ahead as gifts to Esau to try to placate Esau's anger. Lord Esau, these gifts are from my Lord Jacob. They are yours. One, 600 well, I don't know how many groups there were, but 600 animals arrived for Esau. And then the main portion of the caravan follows. And now that gets us to our verses for today. So, that same night, he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, 
you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And it was there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. There are a lot of strange stories in the Hebrew Bible, and this is one of them. And I hope to make clear why I chose this question, why is it that you ask my name? So Jacob is alone. Everything he has in life, he has sent on ahead. Esau and 400 men are moving toward him. Jacob has no idea what's going to happen, but he fears the worst. Esau is going to kill him. He is alone with his own thoughts and his fears. He's alone with the consequences of the choices he has made that have led him to this place. And he's next to a river, which is a place of transition, a liminal space, a threshold. Night falls, and he finds himself attacked by someone. Is it Esau here already, exacting revenge? Is it Laban, who's changed his mind, and he's come to get his daughters and his grandsons back? Is it a robber who knows how wealthy Jacob is? Some supernatural being. Jacob doesn't know. Today we might ask, is it a panic attack? Is it Jacob's own inner turmoil manifesting itself? Or perhaps one of those horrible dreams you just can't wake yourself up from? This wrestling match goes on all night. Neither opponent seems to be winning. Now, Have you ever wrestled even a bit with a sibling? You know how exhausting that is. Imagine how exhausting an all-night wrestling match is. Rolling and flailing on the ground in the dark, covered with dirt and debris, your muscles aching, your chest heaving, you're trying to catch your breath. Your skin is torn due to rocks and thorns and branches, and you're desperately trying to get the upper hand. Jacob who is usually the one to get the better of others, for once cannot control or get the upper hand in this terrifying situation. And then the being, who apparently has had this power the whole time, touches Jacob's hip, and the wrestling match is over. Or is it? Because Jacob does not let go of the man He tells the being, I won't let go until you bless me. Jacob is always grabbing and reaching for more. His very name means heel grabber or trickster because even in the womb he tried to prevent Esau from being born first. Jacob realizes that the being is more powerful than he is and therefore encumbered by his wounded hip Barely able to stand, Jacob uses what little strength he has left to just cling to the man, to hang on to him, and try to get something from him. A blessing. A classic Jacob move. I'm going to get something out of this situation. The man asks Jacob's name, 
And unlike decades before, when Isaac asked Jacob's name and Jacob answered with his brother's name, this time Jacob answers honestly. He owns up. My name is Jacob. This is who I am. I'm a trickster, the one who deceives, and I've got you. And the man concedes. You win. Here's your blessing. No longer are you trickster, deceiver, the one who takes what is not his. From now on, you are Yisrael, because you have wrestled with God and people, and you have prevailed. Jacob has been given a new identity, but he hasn't let go of the old identity. He asked the man for his name. In the ancient world, knowing the name of a deity was a way to have power over that deity. We see this in the New Testament. We saw it in Mark. The demons in Mark were always trying to get the upper hand with Jesus by saying they knew his name. We know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. You are the Holy One of God. But Jesus always silenced them, or in some case, sent them over a cliff. Jacob's trying to do it here. Alas, Jacob, now Israel, is still grasping. But the stranger doesn't give his name. Instead, he responds, why is it that you ask my name? And then he is gone. And it is then that Jacob realizes who he has been fighting. I have seen God face to face. Why is it that you ask my name? There are so many different ways to walk around inside this story. And perhaps you can recognize yourself in this story. Maybe like Jacob, you want a God whose behavior you can predict or control. Or maybe like Jacob, we mistake that knowing about God is the same thing as knowing God. Or maybe our takeaway is encountering God is frightening. Maybe like Jacob, your identity, my identity, is based on our false self. The image we have created for ourselves or the image of ourselves we've been given based on how we've been perceived. And we don't know how to be anything but this persona that gets us through the day that works sometimes but doesn't work that well other times. Or maybe this story encourages us to ask ourselves, what am I wrestling with? Am I wrestling with my choices, my past? Am I wrestling with the church, with scripture, with my identity? There are other ways to walk around inside this story, ways that we see God differently. God welcomes our persistence maybe even rejoices in those who dare to strive with him. He gave his people, Israel, that name, the ones who wrestle with God. And perhaps God welcomes our wrestling because we are rarely closer to God than when we are wrestling with him. Maybe we can learn that God sees us differently than we see ourselves. We see our past. He sees our future. We see our false self, and he sees our true self, our true identity. And therefore, he names us beloved, valued, his children. 
Maybe this story asks us or encourages us to ask ourselves if we have stepped into the identity that God has given us, the identity of his beloved children. I chose this question, why is it that you ask my name? Because it resonated with me. I often come to God to get what I want. I want answers and I don't get them. I want a situation fixed and it doesn't, get, it doesn't happen. And there's this weird paradox going on with me because I really do want God's help, but at the same time, I don't want God messing with me, getting too close for comfort. I like the remote, cosmic, powerful God because that God is actually easier to deal with. But an unpredictable, uncontrollable God who initiates a wrestling match in the middle of the night, who puts skin on, who gets dirty, who stays till daybreak, who is here, present, divine intimacy, that makes me uncomfortable. Because it calls for trust and vulnerability on my part, which may be, when you're dealing with God, another name for faith, trust and vulnerability. Are you wondering how the meeting with Esau went? Because Esau came with his 400 men. It was daybreak. The bean had just left. And Jacob looks up, and there's Esau with his 400 men. What happened next? Esau ran to meet Jacob, threw his arms around Jacob, and wept. Jacob would have been content with safe passage through that land, but he received far more than that. He got his brother back, the relationship restored. Esau forgave Jacob, a lavish gift, unlooked for and frankly, undeserved by Jacob, a grace, a blessing from God. Why is it that you ask my name? I have to ask myself, am I trying to control God because I'm fear is part of my relationship, fear on my part? Is my relationship with God based on fear and what I want? Do I want a relationship based on trust and vulnerability? Do I want God as a sparring partner, the God who may leave me both bruised and blessed, both wounded and and well? Do I want this God who gives me a new identity based on his love for me and who he created me to be? Do I want this God who put skin on and came to live among us, who forgives and even restores the damage I have left as I walk this world? I think I do, because that sounds like a God worth clinging to, worth holding fast to. The band can come up now, if you're okay with that. I never talk with Andrew ahead of time. I'm just like, I think I'll just end and it'll happen. I wrote a, a question on the board back there. And you, this message had multiple takeaways. I know that. But one question that we might want to work with this week is, where is the blessing for you in this story?
Today is also communion, where God is very, very present, isn't he? So let me pray, and then we'll, I'll talk to you about how communion works. Jesus, you have put your life into our hands, and now we put our lives into yours. Please take us, please renew us, please remake us. What we have been is past. What we shall be through you still awaits us. Lead us on. Take us with you. Amen. Where is the blessing for you in this story? So today is communion. Yeah, we have a slide. And um, you'll come up the middle aisles. You'll go down the side aisles. Some of you will forget. You'll go down the middle aisle. That's okay. Um, You'll take the cup, uh, the, the cracker, a cup. They'll pour the juice in. When you walk down these side aisles, it's a little scrunchy now because of the setup with the fractured actors. If you bump into a chair, no worries. Just take care of yourselves. And if I didn't say it already, everyone is welcome to communion at Liminal. If you want to be here and you want to have the cup and the juice, we want you to have it. So today is is communion. It's a sacrament where we acknowledge that God came in the flesh and we wrestled with him and we thought we prevailed by crucifying him. This is a sacrament where we trust that God meets us here in this place with this juice and this cracker, his body and his blood. It's a sacrament where we come bearing our past and all that means. And God gives us his grace, a gift, unlooked for and undeserved on our parts. So here's the communion invitation. And whenever you're ready, after the band starts playing, walk, walk up and the ushers will be here. This is your invitation. This is the table, not of the church, but of Jesus It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have none. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, because it is Christ who invites you. It is his desire that those who want him should meet him here. Amen.